If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, I am Randy Andrews and today marks the final week for Jack Kirby Month. I'm talking about Thor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'll be talking the cast, the background, the technical aspects, the work Jack Kirby did on the character, and of course the soundtrack by Patrick Doyle. All today on Soundtrack Alley. Today is week four of Jack Kirby Month. I'll be talking today about the cast, the crew, the background, the work Jack Kirby did, the score. And so let's get into talking about the film. First, let's talk about Chris Hemsworth. This drink, I like it. I know, it's great, right? Another! (laughs) The final choice for the role of Thor came down to brothers Chris Hemsworth and Liam Hemsworth. Chris found it funny. We both came all the way over here from Australia and ended up battling against each other. He, however, bore no ill will towards Liam, claiming he was rooting for him to get the role. Chris was eventually chosen, but Liam got a supporting role in The Hunger Games. When Chris Hemsworth and Anthony Hopkins each saw each other, in full armor for the first time, Hopkins said, "Uh, God, there's no acting required here, is there? Pretty sarcastic. To prepare for the role of Thor, Chris Hemsworth put on a massive amount of build and weight through a six-month regimen of trips to the gym and indulging in a massive diet of eggs, chicken, sandwiches, vegetables, brown rice, steak, and protein drinks. According to Hemsworth, the action coordinators experimented with different combat styles, but ultimately, the fighting technique Thor utilizes is an original one, based on boxing. Stand slow to the ground with big, powerful hip movements. Agent Coulson asked Thor if he received his training with special forces, and Chris Hemsworth was trained by a former Navy SEAL for his role as Thor. When Thor is getting clothes from Jane, a hello, my name is note is on one of the shirts that reads Donald Blake, PhD. 
who Jane claims is her ex. This is Thor's alter ego in the comic books. When Thor gets back Mjolnir for a brief second, he is seen upright and surrounded by lightning. This is an homage to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, where Prince Adam's transformation into He-Man featured him in a similar position, surrounded by lightning. Earlier on, Thor also asked for a cat to ride. He-Man rides a tiger called Battle Cat. Kenneth Branagh asked Anthony Hopkins to improvise his reaction to Thor's yelling at him in the banishment scene. Hopkins agreed, and when the scene was filmed, many of the cast and crew present or crew present were sobbing. Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston later said they had to struggle to keep their composure during the filming the scene. Hiddleston later com- complimented Hopkins, to which he said, Ken's fantastic, isn't he? Now let's talk about Tom Hiddleston, who played Loki. You know, it all makes sense now why you favored Thor all these years. Because no matter how much you claim to love me, you're going to have a frost giant sitting on the throne of Asgard. When Tom Hiddleston learned he was going to be in the film, he was in a grisly pub in North London and caused an uproar there by screaming out loud. Tom Hiddleston described his role as Loki as a comic book but nastier version of King Lear's Edmund. In the William Shakespeare play, Edmund was a prince who was jealous of his brother Edgar and tricked his father into banishing him in exile. Tom Hiddleston prepared for the role by going on a strict diet before and throughout filming, so that Loki would have a lean but hungry visage. He also found Loki's helmet to be very uncomfortable, and it was super heavy to wear. So he couldn't see out properly, and he channeled that discomfort into Loki's battle scenes. To prepare for the role, he trained with the Brazilian martial art of Coperia. And Tom Hiddleston researched Marvel Comics' Loki and found him to be a multi-dimensional character, so based his performance as Loki on three different actors. Peter O'Toole, the enigmatic reckless persona, Jack Nicholson, an edgy and near-insane persona, and Clint Eastwood, persona with simmering anger. Now let's talk about some of the other characters in Thor. Thor, Odin's son, you have betrayed the express command of your king. Through your arrogance and stupidity, you have opened these peaceful realms and innocent lives to the horror and desolation of war! Dr. Selvig mentions a comrade who got mixed up with S.H.I.E.L.D., whom he describes as a pioneer in gamma radiation. This alludes to Bruce Banner, whose experiments in gamma radiation mutated him into the Incredible Hulk. A deleted scene also has him mention Hank Pym, also known as the original Ant-Man in Ant-Man. Anthony Hopkins claims he relates to his role as Odin, He said, I'm a little like Odin myself. He's a stern man. He's a man with purpose. I play a god who banishes his son from Asgard because he screwed up. He's a hot-headed, temperamental young man, probably a chip off the old block. But I decided he's not really ready to rule the future kingdom, so I banish him. I'm harsh, and my wife complains, and I say, that is why I am the king. 
Anthony Hopkins signed on as Odin despite never reading a Thor comic, nor knowing anything about the Thor mythology. It was the concept of the father and son relationship that intrigued him about the role. Jamie Alexander had served on the wrestling team in her high school in the Texas hometown of Colleyville, so she says that she had some experience in fighting to use in her role as Sif. To prepare for the role of Hemdall, Idris Elba read the Thor comics where Hemdall was featured prominently. He's a very central character and I wanted to reflect him as he is in the comic books. Kenneth Branagh and Tom Hiddleston were performing at the West End stage production of Ivanhoff Ivanov, when it was announced that Branagh would direct this movie. At the 2010 Empire MovieCon, Hiddleston recalled one night when, as a joke, he burst into Branagh's dressing room, wielding an empty plastic container from a water cooler like Mjolnir, shouting, Come on, Ken, what do you think? Branagh's response was reportedly a very jokey, You never know, darling, stranger things have happened. Two months later, Hiddleston was auditioning for Thor before landing the role as Loki. Thor refers to Agent Coulson as Son of Cole, misinterpreting his surname as Coulson. In the way Norse cultures construct surnames, as Odinson becomes Odinson. Natalie Portman took the role of Jane Foster because she couldn't resist the opportunity of a comic book film directed in by the acclaimed director Kenneth Branagh. She said, I was like, Kenneth Branagh doing Thor is super weird. I've got to do it. To prepare for the role of Fenderal, Josh Dallas drew inspiration from renowned swashbuckler Errol Flynn and his films. Flynn had a lot of that boyish charm that Fandral's got all, all of that in him. The comic's characterization of Fandral was also based on Flynn. Colm Fjord's makeup as Luffy, the frost giant, took five hours to apply. Alexander Skarsgård was one of the actors in the running role for Thor, primarily for his physical appearance. Alexander's own father, Stellan Skarsgård, landed a role in the film as Professor Eric Selvig. Zachary Levi was approached for the role of Fenderal, but had to turn it down due to scheduling conflicts. Dominic Cooper was rumored, but Stuart Townsend was then cast in the role. But a few days before filming began, he left the role because of creative differences with the filmmakers. Finally, Josh Dallas took the role and Levi would later play Fandral in Thor The Dark World, where Dallas was no longer available. Cooper would go on to play young Howard Stark in Captain America The First Avenger. You can check that out at the beginning of the month. Colm Fjord described his role as Laufey as the Napoleon Bonaparte of Frost Giants, and drew inspiration from Anthony Hopkins, Max von Sydow, Paul Scosveld, it was originally going to be all Hopkins, but Kenneth Branagh said they didn't need two Hopkins in the film. When the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents track the Asgardians in search of Thor, they spot Sif, Fandral, and Hogan, but not Volstag. 
A deleted scene has Volstagg knock out the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, having tracked them by their food, and then steal it. For his role as a warrior Volstagg, Ray Stevenson wore a specially designed fat suit that gave Volstagg a round but tough appearance. What we've done is kind of sex Volstagg up. He's got every bit of that Falstaffian verve and vigor, and a bit of a beer gut, to suggest an enormous appetite. But he's not the weeble-shaped figure in the comics. He's Falstaff with muscles. Tom Hiddleston was chosen after previously collaborating with Kenneth Branagh on playing the theatrical play of Ivanov, and then also he was on the television series Wallander, also with Kenneth Branagh. According to Don Payne, Jane Foster was more of a stereotypical scientist, dry and skeptical, but Natalie Portman wished to revise the character to make her more poetic. She thought Jane could be someone who thinks outside the box, someone whose theories are considered outlandish and are frowned upon by the scientific community. But it's the kind of thinking that leads to a great discovery. When Thor arrives, she's willing to take a leap of faith, and she has to pay for the consequences of it. In 2014, the Thor comics had Loki designed to look like Tom Hiddleston. Also, Jeremy Renner and Samuel L. Jackson appear in this film, but with uncredited roles. And this is Jeremy Renner's first appearance as Hawkeye in the Marvel Cinematic Franchise. Ray Stevenson's second Marvel comic book movie uh, is in this one with Thor, and his first was Punisher Warzone. With Stan Lee, the creator of Thor in 1962, he appears as a truck driver who attempts to tow Mount Mjolnir out of the crater it landed in. Walter Simonson, a comic book writer and artist whose work on Thor was highly renowned and acclaimed, has a cameo appearance in the banquet scene near the end of the film, sitting between Sif and Volstagg. Jane Foster is seen wearing a special top when the destroyer attacks. On it is the sun partially covered with a thunder cloud. This foreshadows the return of Thor's power. And Samuel L. Jackson describes his Nick Fury post credit scene as connective tissue to the Avengers. Now let's talk a little bit about Kenneth Branagh. I know that there was this period of about three months where I mean, basically I'm sort of auditioning for the job, um, but also uh, I'm old enough, wise enough to know that I'm, I'm hearing, well, how do they want to do it? You know, this is because I don't have to do the job and it's not like I have a big strategic um, plan for it, but I want to, but I'd, you know, I'd love to be in a position of choosing whether I'm good or not. Um, and I've always been a, and I am when I shoot, a sharer of information, so I don't try and you know, you don't have to guess what is my secret vision. I'll tell you if you ask me. Um, it helps me to get it out. It helps me to articulate it. And if you're, if you're in on it, I'd like to know what you think about that um, because um, I am confident that I would retain what I feel is important to me, but it might be changed, enhanced, improved by what you say. And I'm pleased, you know, I want to work with talented people who do that. So it was clear the Marvel boys were very smart. Kevin Feige, the producer, is a particularly uh, you know, brilliant man. And so we had three months of first a telephone conversation, and then, and then I suppose uh, I, I sent more than a letter. I think I, I, we were sort of emailing back and forth a bit, just sort of 
with something like this, uh, it's so big that you can't possibly encapsulate it in, oh, here, here's a paragraph that tells you what it's going to be, or here's a... You're always responding to a latest idea. Uh, and when I, I mean, when I eventually sat down in a room with them, I, I'd written you know, eight pages of a, an opening to a screenplay, which I read for them, because I also wanted to, as an actor, say, it's gonna, this is the feeling, I'm going to read it to you also in the style of. Um, and uh, that was key. And I wanted to hear myself out loud say that as well. I wanted to be sort of tasting it so little in these, um, uh, there's so little one can predict and anticipate. There's a feeling in modern technology you can, because you can pre-visualize it, and you can put music on and have very realistic sort of visuals. But in fact, there's still a great big mystery moment that is what happens when you actually go do it. So you do try and do those things that give you some indication of what that could be, just a little smell of what it might be. So in letters, emails, this meeting, one tried to give a sense of one's feeling for it. You know, because one couldn't, I couldn't pretend that I knew about, uh, you know, oh, it'll be this number of visual effect shots, or it'll be this kind of technique in the way we evoke outer space or whatever. It was always about feeling. It was about... Um, uh, a, a, a great man and great theatre director I've quoted often, Peter Brook, talks about the uninformed hunch. When you try and listen to that interior voice that is trying to tell you what it is, motivate something, it cannot be necessarily fully articulated or fully articulate, but um, a, a lot of my conversations with Marvel and what was probably in that, uh, that letter was, was just a, a sense of an approach, uh, a sense of well, what did I mean by epic? Well, for instance, in Thor, a dangerous and potentially kitsch camp and, and um, um, you know, sort of uh, audience's sympathy tipping moment might be the evocation of this big iconic image from the comics, which is the Rainbow Bridge. You know, you get that wrong and you, you know, you may, you may be celebrating a gay pride parade is what you may be doing in the, in the, in the doing of it, or a, or a Mardi Gras or a carnival. But if you, if you find a more specific story thing, then, then, um, you know, you might, you might really celebrate the distinctiveness of, that, of that, that image. Now, so for me, epic, just so they knew what I meant, was that I definitively wished to try and crack the problem of how we evoke the Rainbow Bridge in the comics Thor on film. Didn't want to duck it, uh, didn't want to do it as they do it in the comics, but that was definitely in what I wanted to do. So if you're taking me on board, I'll be wanting to do that. That's what I think of as it. It's one of the reasons I want to join. I can't imagine another film where I can put six guys on horses riding across a rainbow bridge in outer space to an observatory away from the city of the gods. All of it is so sort of impossibly ambitious. Um, and uh, so one continued to sort of, you know, sort of talk that through and say, and acknowledge, again, you can do so from a position of confidence when you've been doing it for a while. You can say with utter confidence. And how do we do it? I don't know. I simply don't know. But I absolutely believe that we can get there and that the ambition to do so is, is absolutely part of why I'd like the job, please. So how did you get there? Uh, well, because I suppose on, on day one, um, my, my, um, my, my questions from Kevin Feige, the producer, were, uh, or to him were, what, what should I start with? And he said, well, design Asgard, please. Um, you know, the world of the gods. Uh, do that so that it's not embarrassing, kitschy, or campy, but brilliant and um, full of uh, full of inspiration from the comics, but also cool. Um, and cast Thor, find Thor. 
getting back to that instinct and that gut, what was it that, how did you know Chris was right for Thor? Uh, you know, a combination of things in an actor are, uh, are, are always appealing. The, uh, particularly on film, there's something about just a, a sort, of, sort of superficial way of putting it as a kind of likability. Maybe it's to do with ease. Some people are at ease in front of the camera. The camera finds them. They're, they're sort of, if you like, their inner being is very, puts little between them and the, and the audience, or at least it, it doesn't try too hard. And Chris had that ability to somehow be at ease with himself in front of a camera and allow some, not all, um, but because sometimes it was nice to see mystery in his eyes, but to allow his natural charm, his natural humor, uh, his natural uh, sensitivity, his ability to listen, all of those things, he felt at ease. I didn't feel him acting. Some people act them. So you see some actors who fail because they act listening. Something happens to their eyes. You know, they, 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 they just put that, just that extra spin on it. Movie stars can't do that. And movie stars that really uh, allow themselves to be in the affections of the audience don't do that. There's sort of, in, a, in some ways, there's nothing between them and the audience, and there's everything between them. It's partly what intrigues the audience. That plus genuine skills that he had for comedy, for the physical work and everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of a significant, I mean, amount of uh, sex appeal. He's a sexy man. So if, if central to the film working, uh, the idea that you believe he's a god, he worked out so that he was, um, uh, that he's sexy, that he's powerful, that he runs things, that he could be a contender, that he could, he could uh, you know, give a speech to a vast number of people and feel at, easy with it, at ease with it, he could fight a a frost giant easily. And all of that somehow still in this, in this man who's, who's, who's neither desperate nor, uh, nor re reserved uh, either um, meant that he, and he ended up being a, um, a natural. But a great listener as an actor, a worker, a, 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 in the best possible way, a, 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 an actor who worries in a good way. Kenneth Branagh has been a fan of Thor since childhood. When Marvel Student Studios selected Branagh as the director, they sent him with a complete collection of Marvel Thor comics as reference material for the character. According to Kenneth Branagh, the closing credits sequence was based on the images from the Hubble Space Telescope and took 18 months to create. He also conceptualized this film as a Norse and comic book twist on William Shakespeare's Henry V which was about a young king who underwent trials and tribulations, fighting a war, courting a girl from another land, trying to live up to the example set by his father and beloved king, and basic character development. And, ironically, Kenneth Branagh also starred in Henry V. He was also inspired to do a scene where Odin rips off Thor's chest plates from the life of Emil Zola, where a disgraced army officer was stripped of his rank. According to Kenneth Branagh, the film's biggest challenge was connecting the worlds of Asgard and 21st century Earth. It's about finding the framing style, the color palette, finding the texture and the amount of camera movements that help celebrate and express the differences and distinctions in these worlds. If it succeeds, it will mark this film as different. The combination of the primitive and the sophisticated, the ancient and the modern. I think the potential is exciting to have this fusion and it, it builds the exciting tension in the film. 
In the audio commentary, Kenneth Branagh reveals that the shot near the very end of Jane Foster and her associates working in their lab was actually meant to be an opening shot of the film, and that the closing title sequences of The Nine Realms was originally planned to be in the film's prologue. According to Kenneth Branagh, Odin runs the Marvel Universe. It was Odin who hid away the Tesseract in Captain America the First Avenger and the Infinity Gauntlet in the Avengers. Now let's talk about some of the technical aspects of the film. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same thing. What is that? My father explained it to me like this, that your world is one of the nine realms of the cosmos, linked to each other by the branches of Yggdrasil, the world's tree. Now you see it every day without realizing. The images glimpsed through, uh, what did you call it, this, uh, this Hubble telescope. Hubble. <laughs> Hubble telescope. <laughs> So the nine realms. Now there is Midgard, which is Earth. It's Alfheim, Vanaheim, Jotunheim, and Asgard. And that's where I come from. In Norse mythology, Thor's nickname was Protector of Mankind, which is apt considering Thor's superhero status today. Scandinavians until this day wear Mjolnir amulets referred to as Torshammer, Thor's hammers. The film makes extensive use of actual Norse mythology on which the Thor comic was based. The war between the Asgardians and the Jotuns, based on the Azir-Vanir war, where the Jotuns were non-hostile antagonistic race. Odin's ravens, Hugin, Thought and Munin memory, who gather information in Midgard and relay it to Odin, are sitting on his throne during Thor's coronation ceremony. The symbol seen on the weapons vault and on Mjolnir's Triktra, a uh, religious symbol. Its ancestors is the Voltnut, a German symbol associated with Odin. The Bifrost, originally thought of as a rainbow by the Norse, is seen as a beam of rainbow light when Odin appears in Jotunheim. He is riding his eight-legged horse, Slepnir. A Jotun calls Thor a little princess once Thor's hammer was stolen, and he dressed up as a princess to go back and retrieve it. Lofi and Thor describe Loki as a mischievous and talented liar, an homage to Loki's titles as the god of mischief and lies. Thor even asks for a cat to ride, and Thor's mother, Frigga, has her chariot pulled by two large blue cats, a gift from Thor to be noted. This could also reference the goddess Freya. And Thor shows Jane a drawing of a crossroads where the nine orbs are in it. His perception and representation of the great tree around which the nine worlds are tethered, making up the universe. 
It's mentioned in passing that Thor's hammer was forged inside a dying star. This actually makes a modicum of scientific sense. With a very large star, star that when a very large star dies in a supernova, sometimes it remains collapsed to form a neutron star. These objects cram the mass of the sun into the size of a city, forming a new kind of matter nicknamed neutronium. A single teaspoon of this material would weigh billions of tons. If Mjolnir was made of this material, it would certainly explain its incredible weight. The agent that grabs a bow and arrow when Thor is attempting to recover Mjolnir is referred to as Agent Barton. This is Clint Barton, also known as the Archer Hawkeye, and the Marvel hero who appears in the Avengers. The crater that is created by the impact of Thor's hammer is the same design as Captain America's shield. The center where the hammer rests is in the shape of a rough star, which then had two circles in it, clearly intended to be the stripes. When the Destroyer appears on Earth, S.H.I.E.L.D. agents speculate that it could belong to Tony Stark. In the storyline Fear Itself, Tony Stark actually acquired the Destroyer armor from Asgard. Mjolnir is ancient Norse for grinder, which is kind of weird, but interesting. The artifacts seen in the Asgard vaults are various mystical objects seen in the Marvel comics. They are, in chronological appearance, the Tablet of Life and Time, a slab that can extend one's lifetime, the Eye of Agamotto, which plays a major part in Doctor Strange, the Warlock's Eye, an artifact that can control people's minds, the Eternal Flame, a mystical flame that cannot be extinguished, the Casket of Ancient Winters, an enchanted container filled with frosty winds, and it, that also may, plays a major role in the film. And the Infinity Gauntlet, a glove encrusted with six reality-bending jewels, which plays a major part in Avengers Infinity War. In the entire town of Galisteo, New Mexico, it served as a fictional place for the film, and it was entirely constructed to be this little tiny dinky town. According to producer Kevin Feige, the Bifrost Bridge is the film's most interesting set. In the comics, it's literally a rainbow that extends out from Asgard and pops down on Earth. We're not necessarily doing that. We're not having the big, hard, solid lines of colors. We're saying it's some sort of energy, almost like a solid quartz bridge, that as light catches it and flows through it, you get that rainbow-esque quality. The earth town where most of the film is set is Pointo Antigo, which means old bridge and could be hinting at the Bifrost using it as a frequent destination point. And that's also brought out in the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. The film's portrayal of Thor combines the classic Marvel Comics character with the Marvel Ultimate character to where both of those blend into the current Thor that we see. A model of the Infinity Gauntlet, an all-powerful weapon capable of destroying or controlling aspects of reality, 
which would mean soul, time, space, power, and mind. In the Marvel Comics universe, it was constructed for this film. The model was made from bronze and copper, with the jewels made from resin, and weighed 60 pounds. It was built to be operational so that animatronics could be built on it. In the film, the casket of ancient winters was held by the frost giants. In the comics, it was held by the dark elves. In particular, their leader Malekith the Accursed. In the film, Loki holds the casket and asks Odin if he is accursed, an homage to Malekith. Thor's armor is an amalgamation of the current Thor costume and the ultimate Thor. Uh, This is also Chapter 4 of the Phase 1 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now there's also a billboard in the town advertising for New Mexico tourism with the slogan, Land of Enchantment, Journey into Mystery. Land of Enchantment is the nickname of New Mexico, and Journey into Mystery is the title of the Marvel comic book where Thor makes his debut. According to Kevin Feige, the filmmakers placed the Foo Fighters song Walk in the film because they thought its lyrics were strangely appropriate for the film. If you asked two months ago we would have a Foo Fighters song in this movie, I would have said, I don't think so. But we heard the song and just as it was, it had these eerily appropriate lyrics and themes. Ken in particular just loved it with these lyrics about learning to walk again and the way that fit the themes of the movie about redemption and learning to be a hero. The Science of an Entertainment Exchange collaborated with the filmmakers on the film design and production with three physicists, Sean Carroll, Kevin Hand, and Jim Hartle, as well as physics student Kevin Hickerson, to provide a realistic scientific background for the film. This collaboration resulted in changing Jane Foster's profession from nurse to physicist, and used the terminology Einstein-Rosenbridge, named, of course, after Albert Einstein and Nathan Rosen, to describe the the Bifrost. Also, this was the final Marvel cinematic movie that was shot entirely on 35mm film. And the timeline takes place in 965 as well as 2011. Now, throughout the the film, the Avengers, Thor the Dark World, Avengers Age of Ultron, Thor and Loki are referred to as Asgardians. Loki, of course, being notably absent in Age of Ultron. While it makes sense to call the inhabitants of Asgard Asgardians, and it's indeed straightforward to pronounce, the inhabitants of Asgard are actually called Azir. Only once do we see an Azir being referred to by this name. And Thor mentions that he would have words with Loki. This is the famous line Thor said in regards to confronting the Avengers villain Ultron. According to the film's science advisor, Sean Carroll, the Bifrost was meant to be called a wormhole. But they felt it was too 90s, given that the Stargate series had popularized the phrase and also featured Norse gods. So a new phrase was used, which is the Einstein-Rosenbridge. When Thor's silhouette is seen in the lightning storm, photographs of a variety of film equipment can be seen, 
such as a 2K tungsten light and a waveform monitor. Now, the filmmakers cite the work and art of Thor with writers Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Walter Simonson, and J. Michael Straczynski as the influence for the look on the film. And so there are about 1,300 visual shots in the film as it's made up. Now, Michael Straczynski, he was one who appears as the first person to try to lift Mjolnir. So you actually see a comic book creator in a comic book movie. That's the fun part. The film and comic versions of Norse mythology has certain differences from actual Norse myth, as we brought out before. Odin lost an eye in a battle with the Jotuns. In Norse legend, he gave up an eye to attain cosmic wisdom. In Norse legend, Loki is Odin's adopted brother, not Thor's. Loki is also the god of fire and not a frost giant. Laufey is originally Loki's mother and not his father. This change was found amusing in Iceland since Lofi was still a popular female name there. Now, <laughs> one thing that gets me about this is that Thor had entered a pet store and calls for a horse. And then Jane picks him up in a Pingauer 716 truck. The hidden joke is the Pingauer is named after an Austrian breed of horse. Thus, Thor got to ride on a horse. When Dr. Selvig is in the library looking for the book on Norse mythology, there's an illustration of Odin walking across the Bifrost Bridge with his Gunnir spear in one hand and the Tesseract in the other. In Captain America the First Avenger, the Red Skull mentioned that the Tesseract was the jewel of Odin's treasure room. Now, the post credit scene was directed by Joss Whedon to connect the Avengers with this film. Also, in Iron Man 2, Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, is first seen lying in the crater in New Mexico. This was based on the comics of Fantastic Four 536, where in the aftermath of the apocalyptic event on Asgard, Mjolnir was cast out to land in Oklahoma, where it lay until Thor came to reclaim it. The artifact that Nick Fury shows to Dr. Selvig in the post credit scene which plays a major part in Captain America, is the Tesseract, identified to be the Infinity Gem of Space, a component of the Infinity Gauntlet. It's also based upon the Cosmic Cube, a cube-shaped artifact of power. Let's talk a little bit about Jack Kirby and his involvement with Thor. One of the most interesting pieces of information about the character was uncovered this week by the Jack Kirby Museum. It goes without saying that Marvel's modern take isn't the first version of Thor, but as it turns out, he's not even the first version who owes his credit creation to Jack Kirby. And Marvel's Mighty Avenger not being the first time the legendary artist depicted the Thunder God. Turns out he's actually the third of Jack Kirby's Thors. The blonde, bare-chinned version of Thor that hangs out with Captain America and Iron Man in the Marvel Universe makes his appearance in Kirby and Stan Lee's Journey into Mystery, number 82, from 1962. In that story, Dr. Donald Blake found a magical cane in a cave that turned into Mjolnir and turned him into Thor, 
barely beating Loki in his goal of stealing the hammer for himself. Well, it eventually took a back seat to just a flat-out smashing frost giant's faces, one of the powers that was emphasized in the beginning was also Thor's legendary ability to control the weather. Now, this was a western tale. It tells of a man's discovery of a hammer that, when thrown to the ground, brings thunder, lightning, and rain. It also shows to destroy a tree. The man makes some money as a rainmaker and considers the riches the hammer could bring when the god Thor shows up to retrieve his hammer, which was stolen from him by the mischievous Loki. Now, the Kirby Museum also posts the splash page, but since uh, Simon and Kirby's Sandman stories were on bookshelves, uh, we really think about the importance of these different elements of Jack Kirby's work, even with Journey into Mystery. Now let's take a look at some things that we can observe through Stan and Jack's Thor. Thor really was Marvel's Superman. It was said that Thor was Marvel's answer to Superman in terms of power and have to really think about (laughs) that he's so powerful, he wears a red cape, he commands the attention of a room, but also much like Superman, Thor had the knack of pulling random powers out of his red cape. He could create portals, had super breath, and he had super ventriloquism, which is weird. Now, no one draws fights like Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was responsible for how the fights are depicted in the superhero comics, and this is especially true of fist fights. And that's really good when considering Kirby's work on his new gods. And there's rhythm to his fights. There's pacing, and it's hard to match. And so Thor even fights Hercules at one point. So also, when we look at the next point here, is that we don't know why Stan Lee seemed to be involved as much, because Thor's dialogue is really well done. People like to rag on Thor, Uh, because of the archaic dialogue, but if they ever actually read the words Stan put in Thor's mouth, I think they've changed their tune. It was so over-the-top and awesome that it was like lectures to hippies. Now, Stan may have been prone to hyperbole and dialogue that absolutely no one would have said, but in Thor, these had certain advantages. Now, also... The Jack Kirby comics were very fast-paced. Thor starts out a little slow, but eventually just hits a point where the action just doesn't stop. And there's one adventure after another. Thor's in love with Jane Foster, but Odin won't let him get married because an immortal can't marry a mortal. So Thor goes to plead his case, at which point Hercules shows up and a dejected Jane flirts with him to make Thor jealous. Thor then comes back and he and Hercules have a fight because that's what you do when someone hits hits on your girl. And then Odin cuts Thor's power in half, but this enables Cedric, the Merciless, to take over Asgard. Well, you know, one thing leads to another and it's just action-packed. Another thing that's great about Jack Kirby's work is that space is great. With today's computer-enhanced hard work, creating things like clouds, stars, astronomical bodies, and whatnot. It shows 
that there's been several artistic collaborators. Um, but in the 60s, it was much different. And especially with the look of the Silver Surfer and thinking about Kirby and their crew, that they put space elements together to emphasize a scope. It seems like a lot of things were exploding and combined with Asgard, it looked awesome. And there were so many Kirby dots and it was just really cool. Now, even the costumes made sense for the whole world of Thor and how uh, Jack Kirby got these characters correct and bringing that out as by the Silver Age. Now also, number eight... Uh, shows us as Guardians have a great supporting cast, kind of like Riverdale, only the gods are there and they chill and they hang out. Volstagg is funny. They drink a lot, laugh, and the fact that even Loki was bad got him sent to his room uh, by his dad. Go on dates. You have these other characters flirt and you have others go out with each other and it's just fun. And then there's the grandeur. Now this is Stan Lee and Jack Kirby grandeur. Uh, when you look at the Asgardian gods, um, they don't—they're not mundane. They're overpowerful, and they have a presence even on the page. So we've looked at a few of these thoughts, and for a god, Thor may seem a little too human—that he's relatable. Uh, he loves his dad too much to drastically disobey him, but he can't stand some of his dad's decisions. He loves his brother, even if his brother is troublesome menace. And so now let's get into a little bit on the soundtrack. Now, composer Patrick Doyle had brought a newfound boldness to the Harry Potter franchise in 2005 with his Goblet of Fire. And he treats director Kenneth Branagh's big screen adaption of Marvel Comics' iconic Norse superhero, Thor, with appropriate gravitas. Branagh and Patrick Doyle uh, collaborate together on several projects, and Patrick Doyle is probably Kenneth Branagh's favorite composer to work with. Chasing the Storm is a tense and surging unveiling that main theme, and elsewhere the lovely and appropriate stoic Sons of Odin is awash with traditional fantasy elements, while the epic compound unveils a more modern sci-fi action approach, resulting in a score that's wistful, heroic, and as grand as the fantastic realm of Asgard itself. Now, Doyle's best scores bring to mind the finest movie music from the golden age of Hollywood. So who better to create the soundtrack to an epic adventure spanning galaxies starring no less than Stan the Man Lee and Jack King Kirby's Norse God of Thunder and his trusty hammer Mjolnir. So this is really an amazing score and Patrick Doyle really gets our blood pumping on tracks like Frost Giant Battle, Sons of Odin and the Destroyer and Ride to Observatory and these are all very grandiose. At the time when software was able to generate so many of the ostinato effects that you encounter in mainstream movie scores these days, 
it's impossible to overstate how satisfying it is to hear Doyle's force that sound into a more dynamic, lively, symphonic environment. There's indeed doses of Jablonski's Transformers that are heard in the theme for Asgard, but Doyle forces the London Symphony Orchestra's performances to their organic limits, matching the sounds of post-production manipulation through live performance means. For some listeners, the result will be largely the same, but Doyle's enthusiasts The composer, he doesn't throw in a multitude of nuggets to remind us of his own personal style. Um, No, he does. The composer does throw a multitude of nuggets to remind us of his own personal style. In some of the telltale progressions that don't expose this technique enough, you can hear the lovely piano lament of letting go, and it really highlights different themes of what Doyle really does. Thor and Laleen Droit couldn't differ more in tone and scope, and despite the fact that the former channels Howard and the latter owes to Philip Glass, you can hear similarities in the vintage Doyle sound that connect these two. The progressions of the themes of both scores, uh, concluding with Doyle's trademark descending on two notes in an eternal, hopeful manner, are matched by the composer's evidence that he is extremely proficient in squeezing an ungodly number of notes into a single measure. So, there's a one point where you get the sense with letting go and can you see Jane, and it's kind of tonic, uh, provides an equal amount with the playing Bridges and Yannick and Lilia, and the composer's ability to explore these new avenues without completely yielding to convention, is a highlight of such works. Thor has its slower moments, when the composer may seem to lose some momentum. But it's not a perfect score, but anything that is lower, you simply recognize those wonderful pieces even more thoroughly. Like the identity of Thor himself, as a brawny but noble utilitarian one heard at the end of Prologue and Earth to Asgard, and it's littered throughout the score in various guises. The prelude to Thor's future, the theme's weighty performance at the beginning of A New King, is offset by a striking variation late in Banishment that turns additional progressions into the minor key and the theme turns triumphant in Thor Kills the Destroyer in ways that will definitely recall vintage Doyle music of glory, as will the aforementioned woodwind and piano-led performances in Science and Magic, Letting Go, and Can You See Jane? And these represent the character's romantic side as well. Now with these, the opening five-note phrase of the theme is a good tool with which to quickly reference the character's identity and many of the cues in between. Most importantly, Doyle doesn't beat the listener over the head with the idea in such a way as to turn off some of the mainstream, a difficult task given how many superhero themes exist. The score's homage to the RC sound comes in the theme for Asgard, 
heard in the Transformers form in Prologue and Earth to Asgard. This idea lets rip with percussion and violin lines that do distinguish it from its inspiration, though its progressions are a bit too generic for comfort. Uh, the underlying ostinato is a convenient way to suggest the same identity, and it plays into Jotunheim, Crisis in Asgard, and The Hammer Found. Now, some of these may seem really overwhelming, but Patrick Doyle gets his influence from, How from Elmer Bernstein and other composers when you listen to the themes such as Sons of Odin, and the ride to the observatory. And so we can go on and on about uh, how Doyle's score really is a mix of the mythic and modern. And there's rumors that Marvel has tried to restrain Doyle from doing these more traditional stylistic tendencies and asked him to write in a way more akin to much derided Hans Zimmer's and the remote control production's method of scoring. But there's two things that there can be no doubt. This is a Patrick Doyle score, and it's an exhilarating piece of work. The term epic is used a lot these days to describe lots of things, but in a music and film score, the parts of Thor really highlight how mythic and epic this score is. The album comes in a hefty 71 minutes and is full of the kind of powerful action writing you would imagine from a film like this. But also it has a lyrical quality to its underpinning the mythological subtext and text that the film has. And it really highlights that the score is very balanced, and we can really appreciate it for what it is. So today, what I'll be doing is um, playing some of the tracks from the score by Patrick Doyle. Uh, the first set that I'll be playing is Chasing the Storm, Prologue, and Sons of Odin. These really capture that epic feel of Patrick Doyle's score and I hope you enjoy them.
Next, I'll be playing a new king, Laufey, and Frost Giant battle. I believe these are essential for the story as well as the score. Patrick Doyle brings us the bombastic feeling of the Norse gods as well as the Frost Giant encounters. I have always enjoyed these tracks. I hope you enjoy them as well.
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I hope you found it engaging and enjoyable. The last cues I've chosen to play are The Compound, Science and Magic, Thor Kills the Destroyer, Brothers Fight, and Earth to Asgard. These cues really sum up the movie in a neat little package. Jack Kirby's character of Thor is really highlighted in this film, and we feel it through the score and the elements brought forth. We have this Shakespearean epic that brings the Marvel U full circle and shows us that themes still matter. So you can find me at SoundtrackAlley.net, SoundtrackAlley.Podbean.com, Facebook, Twitter at RandallAndrews1, and also you can email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com. Don't forget that the Phil Hester 100 Kirby's starts this weekend. I hope you can bid on pieces that Phil Hester will draw and enjoy the encounters. There's a great site for Kirby for Heroes. It's the official page of where you can go to get more information on how to donate for the Hero Initiative. Also, on site, there will be little donation areas to be able to donate to Omaha to the Hero Initiative, and it's supported by Omaha Bound and Krypton Comics. On my blog, there will be actual links of where you can go to donate for the Hero Initiative and where to find Phil Hester's Kirby's art pages. I'd like to thank you all for participating and listening to this month's activity and hope you come back for many more episodes. So also, I'd like to thank Jillian Orwall for the intro today. And also, as a side note, I'd like to thank the Podcast Arcade for helping me get things going for my podcast. I could thank them a million times and it still wouldn't be enough. Take care for today and happy listening.
thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Thank you.